Time is relentless. Yeah. It's crazy. And my kids turn eight next month. Don't remind me. I can't. Don't remind you. It's crazy. I can't believe it. I feel like we were just, they were just a little squishy, screaming now little babies. Now they're gangly and long <laughs> and awkward and very loud. Very loud. Very but amazing. Loud. Opinionated. Yes. wonder where they get it from. <clears throat> so, Disney Plus. Yes, I got it free through Verizon. It is the in thing right now. Like, yeah. I was way behind the curve by being, like, a week afterwards. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting, but I also think it was a little overhyped. I picked out, no joke, three different movies one day and every single one of the ones that I pick says not currently available due to like contracts or whatever really? not and yeah won't be available until like November of 2020 was On one Disney of Plus? them yeah what movie I can't I even remember but I I gave up that's huh. why I ended up wa- I ended up watching so the first thing I watched was that 20 year anniversary titanic documentary oh my gosh with james cameron i texted you that i was watching it dude it's just it's so cool he doesn't he looks exactly the same but he's made dozens of trips back and they've just gained so much more knowledge about the ship since Mm. they first discovered it it was just it was really neat and they take a look back at which i hadn't seen before and they talk about people real people from the titanic who they modeled characters in the movie after and they showed clips of the movie and then would show a portrait of the person and then a story about them and talked about who they were Hmm. and how they appeared and acted and how they brought these characters to life and i thought that was really cool i did not know that each of the actors and it was made after Mm -hmm. you know real life people if you guys can't tell meg was obsessed with Titanic when she was younger. I, I almost wasn't allowed to see it. But then you ended up owning the VCR tapes, and the movie was so long. They okay, had to it's split v- it between it's v- two. It's okay. It's VHS tapes. What did I say? That go in a VCR. Yeah, I messed it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like by the time you probably like remember like binging kids movies, we were probably into the DVD. I mean, I do remember using yeah. VHS tapes. I had a lot of them, but yeah. But listen, I, I remember know. how they used to like bootleg record stuff on VHS tapes. Oh yeah. Like, can you remember? Do you remember that? Like, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah, it was like two drawers full of them at the lake. Oh, yeah, no, no, but not that. Like, you could, like, the pirating version of VHS tapes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I just think about something like that, and I think of the videos where they give, like, the um, dial phones to Mm -hmm. teenagers, and the teenagers have no idea what they are. No, I remember, too. Sorry, I just got, like, excited. At Blockbuster, they -hmm. would ask you to rewind it. Yeah. Yeah. Be kind, rewind. Yes. Yeah. See? So what's that Jack Black movie? We were just talking about this. Do you remember this? Where he goes and he makes like really poor, like really shitty quality, like three minute long. What? No. Like reenactments of movies in place of the VHS. Because I think he loses it or it's destroyed. So him and his friends like reenact the movie on their budget. Mm -hmm. And they put the tape inside the case and return it. I think I'm probably wrong about some of this, but then like they become popular, so they start doing it for other movies. What the hell? No, you've I don't never. Know. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there's actually somebody on Facebook that just went viral recently. I saw that was recreating movies with a like college budget, and they were freaking hysterical. <laughs> okay, that conversation went way it down really the rabbit did. hole. That's just how our brains work. Well, I mean, everybody else is out there talking about Baby Yoda and everything. That's true. But he is adorable. He is. And I love these g- memes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So good. And um, what's his face? I have spoken. I feel like I heard that I was like, oh, if my kids ever listen to anything I say, like that would that would be my slogan. Like, <laughs> how final is that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think we've covered all the details. 
or caught up. Yeah. It's been two weeks. It yeah. always feels weird after a break. It does. So last episode, <clears throat> excuse me, last recording, we talked a lot about roller coasters, which you really enjoyed. Hell yeah. And we talked about the Coney Island theme park industry, which is a really interesting history. Mm-hmm. And then the NICU incubator exhibit with the doctor. What was his nickname? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I already forgot it. Didn't it have the word grandfather in it? Mm, probably. I don't this know. This is what happens when we record at 9 o'clock at night instead of 9 o'clock in the morning. True. We'll think of it in five minutes. All the caffeine's worn off. But anyway, so we promised that the next episode, which is tonight or now when you're listening to it, was going to be about the real life doctors who inspired MASH, the CN Doe CPR doll, and Dr. Heimlich. And so these topics are much more in my comfort zone than last week, but I found that I learned a lot when I was doing research. And so we grew up in the same house together. But as I was writing this, I realized that if someone said MASH to me, the first thing I would think of was the game from Mm -hmm. elementary school, mansion, apartment, shack, house. But then I wondered if somebody said MASH to you really randomly, would you think of that or would you think of the show? The show first, definitely. But I think of the game. I Mm -hmm. (laughs) I always will. It was the stupidest freaking game trying to just predict how heteronormative your future was going to be. But people would always throw in the wild cards like 47 kids. (laughs) (laughs) Owning 13 convertible cars because you're nine and you have no concept of money and no realization that life is fucking expensive. That's for damn sure. So since you're the one that thinks of MASH the show... And you're the most excited about this. I'm going to let you take it off with a summary and some of your favorite parts to get us started. So for those of you who don't know, MASH, the show that I'm talking about specifically, is the staff of an army hospital in the Korean War. The show was on from 1972 to 1983. There was a movie that took place before the show came out in 1970, but we don't talk about it. It's <clears throat> it'll go into like its own little bubble with yep. Jurassic Park three, the movies that shall not be named, yes. the remake of Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Agre- yes. Oh my gosh. No. Ugh. But yeah. No. It was so bad, and mm-hmm. I love the Fantastic Four. <laughs> um, and in this army hospital, it's they do a really good job of portraying war. But it's also funny. They did a good job with balancing it. The characters in it make their own fun and they use laughter to cope with their surroundings, which can be, you know, bleak and everything. Yeah. Alan Alda stars in it. He's Benjamin Franklin Pierce and he goes by the nickname Hawkeye. And he's amazing. Yeah. Alan Alda is incredible. He's, I'm, I love Hawkeye too, like um, Marvel Hawkeye, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that I'd be able to pick between the two of them. Oh, I definitely pick Alan Alda, hands down. I don't know, man. See, again, I'm over here, mansion, apartment, (laughs) shack, house. (laughs) Um. So it has kind of a cool record still. The show still stands as the most watched finale of any TV series, as well as a most watched episode. And that includes Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and all those popular ones. MASH still Mm -hmm. holds the title. And that is very impressive. It's amazing considering, like, think of everything. I mean, war the topics that they covered Mm. how long it ran like the fact that it was watched by families and not just like a very very specific small population i mean there's a reason why it's still as popular why there are so many reruns Mm -hmm. um but somehow there are just i feel like there is a huge generational gap and there are so many of people out there that are our age mm-hmm. that have never seen it or even heard of it yeah and i don't 
I mean, like I said, we grew up with it, but yeah. I still, I don't, that it, to me, it would be like people who have never seen Monty Python. Same. Like, I mean, Tony def- watch it and he just yeah. did not understand. And it like blew my mind. He left at the rabbit part and that was it. I, I mean, just, I think you have to watch it enough to really get into it where you get invested into the characters because that's, that's what sells the show is it's not just the location. You know, it's not just the comedy. Yeah. It's the actors being those roles and mm-hmm. selling that role. They're selling that celebration and that heartache. And, you know, they're they're making it real. Mm-hmm. They captivated a nation. I mean, how many you you just what was the statistic you just said again? That it's the most watched finale of any TV series. Did you have a number for how many tuned in to the finale? No, I didn't write it down, but it was a lot. And it was also impressive because I did read that the night the finale aired, there was a large part of California that didn't have power. So a lot of people weren't able to watch it. Mm -hmm. So even with those numbers down, like it still holds the title. If they had been able to watch it, it would be even higher. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, there's a, there's a large age, not age, time range here, people. Just, you know, as mm-hmm. a side note, 72, I'm confusing years. Wait, what? How I was just trying to throw out a number as to how long ago it was, and now I can't remember what years it was. The show? Yeah. 72 to 83. Okay, yeah, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, yeah, but if you guys haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It makes you laugh. I still usually cry when I watch it in some scenes. So good. I In, in fact, it's so good. I named one of my cats after my favorite character, mm-hmm. Clinger. It was perfect. So I wrote down one of my favorite quotes from the show, which is a quote from Hawkeye. And it's a little dark, but I think it does a good job describing it. He says, war isn't hell. War is war and hell is hell. And of the two, war is a lot worse. And he goes on to say, there are no bystanders in hell. War is chock full of them. Little kids, cripples, old ladies. In fact, except for some of the brass, almost everybody involved is an innocent bystander. Mm. The fact that it was such a popular show really helped, you know, show to everybody how rough it was on the people that went out there. Well, and the other thing was, was that at the time that it was playing, and we'll talk about it later, is that they're specifically Hawkeye's portrayal and thoughts on the war and the loss of life and the knowledge of what it was like to be losing mm-hmm. these people. Um, people really identified with it, and I think it was the first time that something like that could happen because... I mean, you're talking the be- very beginning of yeah, media, you know, it's... Yeah. So you want to go on to... Well, I wrote down to m- make sure that we mentioned that it won 14 Emmy Awards. True. And with an audience, I think this might have been the finale, even though I asked you for it, of over 100 million viewers. And we Definitely were just looking up statistics and... The cost that the network charged for a 30-second commercial back then was nearly identical to what a Super Bowl commercial would have been just a few years ago. Yes, I forgot that one. In 1983, a 30-second commercial during the MASH finale would be worth today $1,131,991. Yeah. That's crazy. Which is probably like maybe like a decade ago in Super mm-hmm. Bowl time. Yep. And they're not even good anymore. Oh, they suck. It's so upsetting. So obviously, you know, you are more about the show and I'm more about the history. Mm-hmm. And so there's obviously overlap because as we mentioned, the show is based off of the movie that shares the same name that will not be mentioned, which was inspired from a book which was written by one Richard Hornberger. Hornberger. Who, who wrote using his real life experience as a former U.S. Army serv- surgeon who served in the Korean War as the basis for his writing. 
While the show was set in the 1950s, it aired at the same time as the last couple years of the Vietnam War. People across the country joined Hawkeye in his sentiments towards the war and the cost of human life. And according to Hornberger's son, this is exactly one of the reasons why the author hated the television adaptation and Mm. his experiences. And apparently he was a political conservative who did not appreciate Hawkeye's, this is in quotations, liberal anti-war tendencies. And that makes me love Hawkeye so much more. You, What a blatant statement to see a surgeon on a battlefield front hating war. Right? Oh, wow. That, jeez. <laughs> so these issues weren't the only ones that he had with the production because he sounds like a real curmudgeon. And I might feel bad for him otherwise because the truth is that his journey to getting published and then adapted took a long time and a long effort. And it took a lot of healing from him being home. And it took 12 years just for him to write the novel. It was five years of rejection from publishing companies before MASH was made. And this long time frame is also part of the reason why the timing was perfect for the book show movie about war. Add in the fact that Hornberger sold the rights to his novel for next to nothing and he received a mere $500 per episode, it's unsurprising that he distanced himself from what he considered a frustratingly disappointing turn of his work. Is that $500 like today? Then. Then? Yeah. I wonder what that would be today. Way back money. It's probably like a couple thousand dollars. I don't think it's very much. Mm. I mean, look at what they were making, like... Yeah, that's like what they were making, $500 is chump change. Mm -hmm. And in our opinion, the only disappointing thing that we discovered in research is just a short story um, that was a really disappointing change that it had nothing to do with Hornberger or his novel or his hoity-toity opinions. But in the book, there's a character by the name of Dr. Oliver Wendell Jones, who was a black neurosurgeon. But the creators removed his character from the roster in an attempt to make the cast and show, quote unquote, historically accurate, aka they played into the wide held belief that there were no black surgeons involved in the Korean War. And it's a completely outdated and insulting presumption that led to the removal of a pivotal character and a truly unique perspective of the war. Because, of course, this I'm sorry. Because, of course, this fact is fake news. Not only were there black surgeons in the war, but a black man was the chief surgeon of the 800 and... I don't know. How do you say these things again? I'm missing a number, but... Wait, what? I don't know like how... Like the 4077th? Four, so you say... Okay, yeah. so 8222... Two, two, th- two, <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! Mash unit! But... What's important here is not my inability to pronounce that. It's the fact that the team that he oversaw conducted an average of 90 surgeries a week, and his survival rate was 99.4%. So take that, sitcom writers. (laughs) And Dr. Blount went on to receive the Korean Korean War Service Medal for his role in the war, which I think is amazing. And I'm sad that they left it out. But now I'm happy that I was able to tell you. Yay. But while he may have not appreciated... Wait. Hornburger. Hornburger. Yeah. Yeah. Curmudgeon. Hornburger. Plenty of viewers did. The show came to be what I would argue is the main basis of most of America's knowledge of the Korean and even to an extent the Vietnam War. What most people don't know is the real life story of the true MASH doctors in the war and their true contributions and medical advancements. Enter us. Let's get to it. Maybe immediately go to Mulan. Let's, Let's get, get down, down to business. I was so sad when I learned that there's going to be no singing in the live action one. I don't understand there's how no, you... no... What's his name? Mushu? The, there, what? There's no Mushu? No. Well, I mean, I guess, how do you put a... Graphics are the answer, right? But right. How do you take one of... Disney's best musical movies and make it without the music. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, Apparently they're trying to make it more uh, true to the lore. 
they're but, rewriting their own canon then because they've yeah. already killed all of the interpretations of fairy tales ever. Right. I mean, sorry. There's okay. There's brain doing that thing again. Gonna go to Disney Plus tomorrow and watch Mulan. Perfect. Haha. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So for as long... Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're welcome. For as long as war has existed, there have been people trying to help the sick, the injured, and the dying. And for as long as people have been working to offer aid, we've seen the creation and implementation of battle medicine. From the very beginning, medical personnel have struggled to adequately offer their help. There are five main areas where early portable hospitals struggled. First, tools and equipment for surgery, including anesthesia, were unavailable. Anesthesia on a battlefield in a time when we were still struggling right. to knock people out without like making them puke up their guts when they woke up. Terrifying. Second, there were not enough beds to go around for all the sick. Third, medical personnel lacked the necessary experience and skills as a surgeon to meet their job requirements. Fourth, they were not self-sufficient, meaning they had to rely on other hospitals for their needs. And last, the often dangerous and unknown territory of the battle location made access to and removal of the injured impossible, if not incredibly difficult. You see that in MASH all the times. There would be bombings going on in the background, and the doctors would huddle over the bodies so yeah. it wouldn't get dust in them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's the history of what we cover here is a pretty good history of, of MASH, mm-hmm. I would say. But there's so much more. So if this is something that interests you, um, there's a lot more available out there to read on. So I would Absolutely. highly suggest that... Um, that you look into it more. Mm-hmm. We first see mobile hospitals used during World War II from 1939 to 1945. At the time, they were called auxiliary surgical groups, and the idea was based off of a concept dating back to the Napoleonic Wars. Medical care was given based on the priority of needs of the soldiers. They called they named it triage after the French word for sort, sort out. I never knew what that meant. That's yeah, cool. I didn't even bother putting down what the friend's pronunciation was because yeah, we're going to butcher it anyway. Yeah. yeah, I love learning the origin of words, everyday mm-hmm. words that we don't realize have a history. Yeah, this experience helped to refine the process of having and utilizing portable war hospitals. The mind behind this concept was one Baron Dominique Jean, or is that Jean? Larry, I'm guessing Larray or something better than Larry, (laughs) who has been heralded as the father of combat medicine. So I also love people who are heralded as like the father Mm -hmm. of this or the grandfather of that. Although that's kind of sexist. You don't ever hear the well, the grandmother that just doesn't (laughs) that sounds weird. But okay, so it was this Baron's idea and his work that laid the foundation for ambulance volante or medical evacuation a process that we use today just fun enter 1950 north korea invaded south korea and the war began by 1951 the united states was busy sending out draft notices at the time there were a mere 200 doctors in service with the u.s military and located overseers near the conflict Congress quickly passed a new bill nicknamed the Doctor Drafts, which required all medical personnel under the age of 50 to enlist, including fresh-faced graduate students and interns like Hornberg. Mm-hmm. After being drafted, they were given three days of Army training. Three days. That's, yep, three days. Gosh. And this is part of what made their job so dangerous mm-hmm. because they had no military experience had no knowledge of Mm -hmm. self-defense let alone how to act in a war setting right three days of training and then and that was followed by what i have to assume is a very limited training in the fields of nuclear biological and chemical defense as well as military correspondence and legalese they just had no idea what they were doing no way A five-week training course was on the schedule for draftees after their training, but history seems to show that either the requirement was lenient or not well recorded. As it was, most people saw training for medical personnel as a hands-on experience that can only be taught and learned in the moment. Battle medicine requires battle. Once on location, these draftees would be sent to mobile mobile army surgical hospitals. Oh my gosh. 
I know, it's a tongue twister. Or MASH for short. The idea behind these portable hospitals was to be close enough to the front to offer faster access to the injured, but far enough away that they themselves weren't at risk. They were typically within 10 to 20 miles, with some records showing as close as five miles from the front. Yeah, I can't mm-hmm. So yeah. after a surprise and unsuitable promotion, Unsuitable promotion from tissue pathologist to battalion surgeon. One MASH doctor we read about was noted as having laughed and said, in military medicine, all doctors became surgeons. And it was a sad but true sentiment about the Korean War. It did not matter what you majored in Mm -hmm. before you came to the war. Once you were at the war, you were a battalion surgeon. Yeah, so scary. Throughout the Korean War, there were 10 tent-based hospitals that took turns moving around the war front, collectively caring for the sick, the injured, and the dying. Together, they collectively cared for four army divisions, which averaged 17,500 soldiers per division. Which is a lot. Yeah. Most of these units moved at least once a month, unlike the, the show, which moved only once. I think they can be forgiven for their artistic license, though, because the amount of people, supplies, vehicles, and everything else inside these mobile hospitals was a lot. So much. And I mean, if you've ever moved, if you've ever moved your house, that's just one small move. This is a literal mobile hospital. It's not just like everything. a surgical tent yeah. with a, with a cot. It's like a the hospital. walls, yeah. everything. Yep. The units were designed and created to be completely mobile, able to be broken down, loaded into a vehicle, and transported to a secondary location, and then reassembled just as quickly as it was taken down. Each MASH unit had its own ambulance platoon and four helicopters, which were responsible for not just bringing the injured in from the battlefield, but were also tasked with resupply. Not only did these Stowingo hospitals have a lot of employees and supplies, but the unit itself was also home to ICU beds, a radiology department, a pharmacy, a lab, offices, and living quarters. Half a dozen MASH personnel lived in each tent, but it wasn't all bad. If the bunkmates got along like they did in the show, which did happen in real life, the living areas took on a personalized, fun atmosphere. One in particular, named the Drake Hotel by its occupants, would bake food over their stove. Apple pies, pizzas, pizza. They would I'm make, so hungry now. Right? <laughs> they would make dinner for their nurses as a show of gratitude for their hard work. Music would be turned on and people might forget about the war just for a little bit. Yeah. A little escape mm-hmm. for just a little while. So the, how do you say this again? 4077th. 4077th unit. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> That's pr- I'll go out and delete that if I can figure out how. So <laughs> it's the that time of year. 4077th unit from the fictional mass show was smaller than its real life version, and understandably so, but not by that much. The TV show had four medical officers, ten nurses, and roughly sixty personnel. On the other hand, the 8076th, a real life mass unit, had ten medical officers, twelve nurses, and eighty-nine personnel. This particular unit is a good example to discuss as they would go on to be awarded a com- commendation for accept. Sorry. No, you're good. And we're back. Okay. So, a commendation for exceptionally meritorious conduct in the performance of outstanding services in Korea in support of combat operations. See, I would have needed to take a drink just to say that right. anyway. <laughs> so, by design, this unit was a 60-bed hospital. But in one particular instance, this MASH unit would be the medical support for nearly every troop at the front line, admitting over 5,600 patients and performing over 200 140 surgeries in just one day mm-hmm. over the unit's lifespan in the war it would move at least 13 times and cared for a total of over 15,000 patients in just the nine months that it was in operation and the show the surgeons would sometimes literally be doing surgery for over 24 hours straight i've read i read stories about That's it crazy. too i can't how i can't imagine how they managed to stay awake right? yeah and so each day at a at a mash location, loudspeaker announcements would crackle over the speakers with a listing of 
a list of the incoming wounded. Helicopters would deliver wounded soldiers plucked from the battlefield. And this is where the whole them being heroes comes into play. Mm -hmm. The standard work schedule of a MASH doctor, which is laughable, Mm because given what we were just saying, was supposed to be 12 hours on and 12 hours off. But it wasn't uncommon for procedures or surgeries to run long or... Like, what happened most often is there would be another flush of injured coming in needing assistance. One specific instance involved a Dr. Otto F. Apel Jr., who served the 8076th MASH. Upon his arrival to his location, he operated for a solid 80 hours and had to cut his boots off of his feet due to the swelling. After that, which was, that was his first time, after that, his unit moved every three weeks oh my god what an initiation yeah when a soldier was wounded in battle medics on the scene would attend to him if the injury required medical assistance he would be taken to a mass unit for surgery or assistance after the surgery took place he would be moved to a non-mobile hospital or he would be sent home mm-hmm. and the pre-op tent had unsurprisingly a preparation area so after going through that process the injured were brought into the surgery area of the tent and placed on one of the metal tables nurses would brief the doctors on the intake notes and examination of the patient and then the surgery could begin each table or patient typically had a couple doctors and a couple nurses but in the busiest mash tent on some of the worst days of the war, it wasn't uncommon for a single single doctor to work on a patient with a single nurse or other mm-hmm. medical personnel to assist them by bringing and taking items and essentially just following their orders. Yeah. Two people. Crazy. A chief of surgery of the 8076th MASH can be quoted about his experience in the hospital tents. A single naked light bulb hangs over a bed. In it, a patient hooked up to an IV and draped in a white sheet. When first entering the tent, it wasn't the darkness or the smell of dirt and dust or rubbing alcohol and soap. It was the heat that got to you, gave you the sensation of crawling all over your skin. Because it turns out the... Weather and climate in Mm. Korea isn't what viewers or people in the actual war were used to. Mm -hmm. And if the sheer number of patients and the volume of the injured wasn't enough, the doctors saw injuries specific to the Korean War and or their career that were horrible. Because a popular weapon at the time that was commonly referred to as a bouncing Betty, which was an anti-personnel mind, which means it was made with the intention to take down a person rather than like a tank right. or something. I had to look it up. I don't I don't really know this stuff. But when this weapon was tripped, it fired three feet into the air before exploding. And it often resulted in anyone within the range being disemboweled. Brutal. And Early on in my research, I was reading that there were specific mash tents that really specialized in these types of restorative surgeries from this, but I couldn't figure out why they were talking about colorectal surgeries so much Mm. until I got to the very small chapter on just this one little popular weapon, and there you have it. And the, su- the surgeons were run over with wounds from these mines because they were high-velocity wounds. They caused vascular trauma, the colorectal injuries that I was talking about, and burns. Oh. There was a popular motto that the MASH triage used, life takes precedence over limb, function over anatomical defects. Uh, unlike prior wars, the symbol worn by medical personnel became a target for enemies, requiring medics to carry weapons and, when possible, for the groups of medical personnel to be escorted by an armed troop of soldiers. Because of them. We were talking about that before we talked, mm-hmm. or before we started the episode about the, was it the Geneva Convention? Yeah. Things that you really should have learned more about in high school is what we'll call this whole episode. Right. So as the war drew to a close and the battle stopped moving, the need for the MASH units dwindled. Remaining units were giving orders to now tend to any prisoners of war and any injured civilians. By the turn of the century, there was only one unit left in the world. MASH units, or some form of them, have been deployed to every major military conflict the U.S. has has been involved in since the Second World War, which... 
I'm going to list because I had to Google it too, involves the Gulf War, Korea, Vietnam, and Afghanistan. Mm. So the 8055th unit where Hornberger worked, the guy that wrote the book mm-hmm. that made the show, and the stories of the mash that he created was shut down in 2001. But because of their effectiveness and their efficiency, the mobile hospital hospital units in the Korean War helped to inspire the mobile units that we have today, which are now called forward surgical teams. I don't think it's quite as... doesn't sound as catchy. Yeah. All in all, it seems like the adaptation of MASH from a book to a show was an unparalleled success. Through the chapters and episodes, the public learned more about medical advancements than I bet any of them were aware of. In terms of medical advancements from the Korean War, we see a lot. It's impressive. Yeah. Improvements and accomplishments in trauma-related care, like keeping open wounds clean while waiting for surgery, called, gosh, mouth is dry, debridement and irritation, aka removing foreign materials from wounds and keeping them flushed out. It also includes the helicopters that they used in the Korean War, the ones that brought in people from the battlefront were referred to as air ambulances, and they became a standard way of transporting the injured from the battlefield to the medical assistance. The use and efficiency of the evacuation, evaluation, and ambulance process of bringing the injured to the hospital. That set new standards. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the storing and distribution of blood, which totally took me by surprise. But it turns out that blood was transported via helicopters to medical supply depots in Korea, and then was sent to individual MASH units. And the creation and implementation of a preservative that they added to the supplies was created. And we also saw the use of refrigeration and styrofoam containers and blood storage Mm -hmm. in use. Korean war mash surgeons rediscovered and repopularized the practice of warming up injured patients. Which was especially important for patients that were in shock. Mm -hmm. And then we have the new and improved speed of evacuating injured soldiers combined with the improved techniques and care of vascular injury repair, which entails an injury to either an artery or a vein. And it gave way to significantly lower amputation rates than that of World War II, which is 13% versus 36%. My brain read that wrong. I read too quickly, and I thought it said ejaculating injured soldiers, and I was like, what? That's not good. <laughs> I guess it's a good thing I read that right. one. <laughs> like, something's not right here. Surgeons recognized the importance of fluid retention in burn patients, which resulted in a 50% lower mortality rate for burn victims. There's that bouncing Betty victims again. Mm -hmm. The band arterial repair performed by doctors like Hornberger helped to advance our knowledge on not just arteries, but blood vessels and how to repair them. At that time, the group of surgeons who went on to specialize in these procedures unanimously declared that their Hippocratic Oath was more important than the army regulations that told them not to perform these procedures. The Hippocratic Oath is essentially an unofficial, very old Greek medical text that many doctors throughout time have adopted as a mantra and a motto for their work. The text itself has been translated many times and has also been rewritten to best suit the time and people using the ideas, kind of like another popular book we know. (laughs) But what remains clear over the years is that this text is really a mentality, a way of practicing medicine that creates a special relationship, not just between the physician and the patient, but the community as a whole. It's widely and unfortunately incorrectly believed to contain the phrase and instruction, first, do no harm. But it does impress a standard of ethics and morals for its followers. It may not be required by modern medical schools, but the idea of the Hippocratic Oath is still around today, if you know where to look. It's a consistent phrase and idea mentioned in most, if not all, medical podcasts. Including my favorite, Sawbones. I think they have an entire episode on it, actually, if you're Mm. interested. 
Okay, so then back to not back to my own podcast. Henry <laughs> Heimlich was a thoracic surgeon sitting home one Sunday in 1972 when he read an article in the newspaper that discussed how common of an occurrence choking to death is. He was shocked at the numbers. Each year, 3,000 people choked to death. And he reflected on this topic and those numbers. He was really astounded that it was so common. And he noted that it wasn't common to read about it despite how common of an occurrence it was Mm. and he noted that mostly famous people who died choking made the headlines so he decided he was going to do something about it he was one of those go-getters he started doing research and he discovered that up until recently the american red cross had been advising people to slap the back of a choking person and he was not satisfied or convinced of this method at all Now, because of his work in his specialty field, he knew that even when you exhale, there's residual air in your lungs. So he realized the trick was figuring out how to utilize that pocket of air to help force the lodged object out. Mm. So some tubing tape, a balloon, and one beagle dog later, Dr. Heimlich discovered that by pushing up on the diaphragm, it would push the air out of the lungs with enough force to remove the foreign object. But would it work with a smaller item, something that's only partially obstructing the airway? Well, it turned out that as long as there was airflow, it didn't matter what piece of food or item was stuck. It would be forced out regardless. So now that Heimlich has a solution, a studied and recreatable process, he had to figure out how to educate the masses. It takes just four minutes for a child to die from choking, which is far too short of a time for parents and caregivers to be able to depend on the response time of EMTs or other trained medical professionals. No, no shade. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reality. But after much testing, he determined that the best way to perform the maneuver was to stand behind them and reach around the person with both arms. And I could only imagine, like, friends that might just have shown up at his house be like, hey, Henry, it's Friday night. What you doing? And he's just, like, got his beagle. And he's, like, trying to, like, if I stand forward, what if, you know, we're facing each other? What if we're laying down? The things that I think about. I mean, the beagle. The beagle. So anyway, he off he also created a way to administer the life saving technique if the person choking was lying on the ground because he wanted there to be an option for people who weren't as large as himself with as much ability to force it. So by lying on the ground you can use your weight to help you do mm. the procedure. But for his own purposes, Heimlich dubbed the method the subdiaphragmatic pressure, which obviously didn't stick. But the name Heimlich Maneuver wouldn't come until later, after the articles began to appear in newspapers with his interviews. Dr. Heimlich went on record saying that even now, through all of his testing and research, he wasn't sure it would save someone. There's, you know, there's really only one way to find out. But there are so many factors to consider, including human error, especially in a world before Mm -hmm. modern technology. You can't just ask Siri how to, you know, give someone the Heimlich. But the alternative was to say nothing and continue to let people die. Only two years later, hundreds of newspapers were published with these instructions. And now it was a waiting game. The wait wasn't long. Only one week later, an article appeared in a different newspaper with the title, News Article Helps Prevent a Choking Death. It worked. The first recorded and reported person to perform this new maneuver was Pia? I believe so. A retired restaurant owner who was able to save his neighbor who had choked on a bite of her dinner. If you're wondering what the identity (laughs) of the unidentified lodged item was and whether it was recorded... The answer is yes, and a large piece of chicken. Chicken. Good. <laughs> the story, the original article, and the maneuver spread like wildflower. What did, did wild, you say wildflower? wildflower? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, that's the best ever. Oh, I need sleep. Okay. I'm writing that down. I need to put that on a mug. Right, Wait, which kind of flower? <laughs> <laughs> like baking flour or dandelion? Da- flower flowers. Okay, well they're spelled differently. So I'm gonna give yeah. you a gift with your little uh, 
Oh my gosh. Slip there. Okay. What am I even talking about? Okay, they spread like <laughs> wildfire. Dr. Heimlich even received communication from acquaintances about their personal success stories of using the maneuver to save a loved one, including the former director of medical services as at Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. No big deal. I don't even, I've never heard of it before, but that I, just sounds yeah, so right? impressive. His wife had choked on a piece of bone. That's what she said. Yeah, even though it did not cause... <laughs> so it didn't cause a complete obstruction. <laughs> I'm so oh glad she lived because I would feel so much worse for laughing. Right. Uh, okay, sorry. Oh my gosh. So even though it didn't cause a complete obstruction, <laughs> the maneuver was successful in dislodging the bone. <laughs> Sorry, we're so immature. Oh my gosh. This whole thing is that's what she said. (laughs) All of Heimlich's suppositions and instincts have proven right. Calls and reports came in that not only were people able to save others, but they had saved themselves. Time and again, it was proven that people could self-perform the maneuver by pressing their abdomen against anything that will replace hands pushing, like chairs and desks and fences. It wasn't long before the Journal of the American Medical Association was writing to the doctor, asking for an official write-up of his study and creation of the maneuver, which they were now referring to as the Heimlich Maneuver. And so, in the fall of 1975, the first scientific article on the newly coined process was published. Soon after, the maneuver was endorsed by an outdated branch of the AMA that oversaw emergency medical services. It's an outdated branch that doesn't exist anymore, but, um, so... I just, I think that's what it did. I hope. This is all actually kind of outdated. You, you get a lot mm. of repeats when you micro-search something super specific, like the invention of the Heimlich Maneuver. But 10 years later, in 1985, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services published a notice that the Surgeon General of the United States officially endorsed the Heimlich Maneuver, not as the preferred, but as the only method that should be used for the treatment of choking from foreign body airway obstruction. Apparently, that's how you have to say it to not have it be a that's what she said (laughs) joke. So, way to go, Henry. Everyone seemed to be on board with this life-changing discovery. Everyone, that is, except the American Red Cross. Did I mention earlier that they used to advise people to slap them on the back? I did, yeah. yeah. So, they continued to do this even when the Heimlich Maneuver was proven. They switched to Heimlich. Mm Mm-hmm. And then switched back to slapping. Freaking dingus. It was like a weird passive aggressive kind of hmm. play. But um, so it was not only believed to be dangerous, but it was proven. Yet after Dr. Heimlich published this article, they went back and forth. It's an odd interaction. And I didn't get any satisfying answers from research. Which is probably okay because the reputation of the arc the american red cross is not in great standing today many sources are encouraging people not to donate money to them and to find another way preferably on a more local basis for your money or donations to help i did a quick search because i was curious because i do hear this a lot and i want to do like more research on it later but one of the first ones that caught my eye that had like actual statistics for these accusations was that they received some huge amount of donations from Haiti when people donated Mm. to the American Red Cross. And if this article was correct, 25% of the $5 million that they received went towards like, um, what did they say? Like they're off, like restructuring their offices or something. And on one, and on one hand, when you have an organization that has a mass influx of money, like when they did the ice bucket challenge, you do mm-hmm. have to spend resources managing that much money. But that this isn't some small foundation. We're talking about the American Red Cross, right? So mm-hmm. if anybody knows, I'll definitely be doing a little bit more research. Mm-hmm. But 
segue over. So it's impossible to estimate the number of lives that have been saved because of one doctor and his Heimlich maneuver, but I imagine the number is vast. In an attempt to compare back then to today, which is one of our favorite things, which it's really not that long, but the statistics don't help. In 1972, Dr. Heimlich was looking at 3,000 deaths per year due to choking. A quick internet search brought up a choking safety website that likely exists because of Dr. Heimlich himself, and that was kind of neat Mm. but according to the most recent statistics they provided which are from 2017 5051 people died from choking making it the fourth leading cause of death so the numbers didn't go down and they're i still just doubling i don't are people just not chewing their food enough i'm wondering what else is playing into this because i was shocked that it's that many people now uh, there was a significant portion of those people that were elderly that had choked but that's still a lot of people that the heimlich maneuver has been around for generations now but we won't end his story on a sad note So there was a very endearing personality that came through while reading all of the interviews and articles about Henry. Heimlich seems like he could be anyone's grandpa. He was a quiet yet deeply caring man who never didn't have the time to talk to someone with a story to share. Early on, he could actually identify the faces and families of children that had told him their survival story but as time went on there were too many stories if there Mm. can be such a thing as too many survival stories but he had a wall in his home where he lived with the pictures that he received in many letters that came over the years each picture was a snapshot of one life that received a second chance all thanks to that one humble doctor so adorable he i i just love this story so much it's Mm -hmm. so heartwarming if only there were more humble doctors in history. We seem to have a penchant for finding them, so we're going to collect them like Pokemon mm-hmm. and then share their stories as often as we can. It's always nice to have positive and satisfying medical stories to tell. The very basis of medical history is life and thus death. All of history, if we're being honest, it's balance. Many of our favorite time periods to read about and discuss are cultures that embrace both life and death. The most, the first and most prominent example that comes to mind is, of course, the ancient Egyptians. And when we talk about ancient Egypt, the first or most common follow-up topic people bring up is King Tut. Uh, so King Tut, and I'll probably butcher it with a Tutankhamun, the Pharaoh Prince, was and is a historical celebrity. Mm-hmm. And with a sarcophagus as gorgeous, extravagant, and fucking expensive as his was, it's really no surprise And while I could go on and on about each of these topics, because I've loved ancient Egypt since I was little, there's one specific reason why we brought up Tut tonight. And that's because he serves as a good, if rough, early example of a death mask. Now, a death mask, if you're not familiar with them, is pretty much what it sounds like. They are funerary masks that date back to antiquity, really ancient past. A current but true to history recipe tutorial calls for, which is a re, not reenactment, like a historically accurate reconstruction of materials for this. So it calls for plaster of Paris, wax, and a special ingredient that serves as a molding compound called alginate gel. And it's the same gloppy stuff that the dentist used to take impressions of your teeth. Yeah. And so ancient and wealthy Romans are noted as having displayed death masks in their home, both to observe and research said worship, but I feel like maybe pray to kind of Mm. is more appropriate. But our favorite era for death masks is the Victorian era. This is back when, for a brief while, people believed in phrenology, a process that, quote unquote, read a person's skull to determine their character. During this fad, people became interested in collecting death masks to study the subject's head, mm-hmm. which is pretty freaking cool. It's so the the whole process was so quacked, but I <laughs> I love it. It's ridiculous. The Victorian era is the time frame that Queen Victorian reigned in the UK, which is 1837 to 1901. Amongst the fad of phrenology and the era's fascination with the macabre and weird Death masks were made, sold, traded, collected, and studied. These masks were effigies. They were permanent sculptures of people, be they family members, friends, famous people, or even criminals. 
Negatives made from plaster could be used to create molds out of various other materials from wax to metal. Even after the creation and popularity of the camera, death masks were still popular. They are eternal three-dimensional representations, and they have a certain something to them that 2D renderings just don't. And maybe that's part of the magic, because it appears anyone and everyone famous from this time period had a desk mask made. If you toured the world, you could stop along the way and view famous death masks in various museums and institutions such as Beethoven, John Dillinger, Marie Antoinette, Mary Queen of Scots, our bud Napoleon, Napoleon. and in a throwback to our episode about resurrection, Burke and Hare have a death and life mask, respectively. Yep. And then there's the unusual case of the dough of the CN. Is that yes, how you... I think, yeah. Okay, I took Sounds German. Right. <sighs> Nicknamed the Mona Lisa of the CN and the drowned Mona Lisa, this young girl is one of the most famous yet least recognized faces in history. The records don't have exact dates, but the unknown woman of the CN was retrieved from the river, which was located in Paris, sometime in the time span of 1870 to 1880. According to the legend, even in death, this young woman was beautiful, serene. The police who recovered her body declared her death a suicide and said that she had drowned in the water. No one came forward to claim her body, so a death mask was made and placed in the window of a local business in the hopes that someone walking by would recognize her and give her a name. Sometimes versions of the story say that the death mask was placed in the Paris mortuary, Mm. but that's not as common it seems. And so this dough served as inspiration for writers and artists of all kinds. Her image maintained recognition and envy despite her lack of name. And wherever it was that she was placed, there she sat, with a face so perfect it was said she looked like she was simply sleeping. And there she stayed for almost a century. It was the 1950s now, and a toy manufacturer named Asmund Lairdahl butchered that had been approached for a special project. His client wanted him to create a doll, a mannequin, that could be used for a new life-saving technique, CPR. A better person could not have been approached because this toy manufacturer had recently almost lost his son to drowning. When he got to designing, it was the signed doe's face that he chose. In 1960, the doe finally had a name. (laughs) Resuscitation Anne. Why Anne? I don't know. Her death mask was used to create a torso or full-body mannequin to mimic a patient that trainees practice chest compressions in the kiss of life. For over 50 years, the drowned Mona Lisa has helped save countless lives and prepared people from all occupations how to be prepared to give life-saving CPR to somebody. Yes, and please do not take life-saving CPR advice from us. I know that the standards have changed, mm-hmm. but um, we mentioned the the compressions in the kiss of life as a reference because that's what Heimlich taught and that's mm-hmm. what those people learned i'm not sure what the most current honestly the first thing i think of when i think of a cpr doll is in the office dwight cuts the face off of it oh and then yeah he and then puts he, it, it looks he like quotes it yeah, that's he, what the, i thought it was silly putty no he quotes the silence of the lambs that's so <laughs> creepy it's amazing oh my gosh Ugh. so yeah so like we said the story changed and there's some versions where the young this young woman who was about 16 they think had run away with a lover and maybe the lover had scorned her or found another dame to run off with and she in a state of heartbreak threw herself into the river and committed suicide and that's mostly what the legends say but the issue is that um her body didn't show signs of drowning and it didn't have the same look that a suicide victim did when they retrieved the body out of the river so there are a lot of uh, conspiracies about um where she came from who was she like if she didn't come out of a a river where did she come from or if she did come out of a river what happened to her there was one story that i read where someone recognized her as a long lost twin but it was one of those things where it was in a shop in a window but the shop didn't have a name and you know Mm. there was no exact location kind of thing but one of the conspiracies is that she actually is a life mask which would explain the slight smile that she has. 
or otherwise she just tragically died young and managed to just look very peaceful yeah. i mean it's we'll yeah. never know i think it's kind of an interesting thing yeah especially considering before now i'm willing to bet that at least a few people listening to this didn't know that she had an identity mm-hmm. it's like when i learned that the mask that mike myers wears in halloween is william, william shatter's Shatner. face yeah. it was <laughs> mind blown so fun yeah oh so we started trying to do that new ask a question that has to do with the episode at the end for a wind down and this one was a weird one because it was all medical based but what we decided on is if you had anything named after you as a way for you to be remembered when you were alive what would you pick like because these doctors have procedures and diseases and things that they Mm -hmm. discover what would you my microphone's sagging again. I need some Viagra. Okay. What would you uh Well, what did would you, you think pick? of an answer yet? I, I think I have a rough one. I mean, it's probably not surprising. You can go first. I would just go typical me naming some cute, fuzzy new animal that oh, they found. New animal. Yeah. I was thinking a library. Mm. like a you know and dedication kind of thing or like found it like i i joked with seth once that all these weird outdated wacky snake medicine books that i buy because the library (laughs) doesn't have them is going to eventually amount to some kind of collection and i said maybe one day i'll donate it and then there will be a library of Mm. weird medical history because there isn't one anywhere local true yeah Probably not something enough people want to right. demand it, but yeah, I yeah. think I'd probably go with library That's or a, a cute or a cure to. Does well, you can't really say disease. I'll go with library. I don't okay. want to go down yeah. that route. Good choice. Good choice. So yeah, that was our wait. What did we say? Eleventh episode. Eleven. Yep. Yeah. And next week, do we want to? Are we yeah. doing doing teasers? Yeah. So next week we're going to be talking about Wishing Wells, children's nursery rhymes, and The Countess Who Bathed in Blood. It's a solid episode. It really is. You better tune in. Yeah, seriously. And as a bonus, because we skipped a week because of Thanksgiving, next Friday also happens to be Friday the 13th. So we're going to do a second bonus episode. Which will be the 13th episode. Yes. On the Friday the 13th. So they'll both be released. You'll have two episodes to download if you haven't already subscribed. So that way they automatically download to your device once they're listed on our Mm -hmm. Anchor account. And the second episode that we'll be doing is a really fun one. We're going to bring to you 13 short stories that... We really enjoy, but aren't really long enough to make it into an episode mm-hmm. on their own. And there may or may not be some uh, criminals and um, butter and uh, Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Was hippos one of them? Or was hippos, that hippos, yeah. Hippos, yeah. It's a really solid uh, yeah variety. We'll get, we'll get all the randomness in there. Yeah, that our brains it'll be it'll loves. be good. It'll mm-hmm. be a funny episode. So, thank you for tuning in, and if you want more podities in your life, you can join us back here next Friday to learn some new odd things. In the meantime, you can find us on social media. Instagram, at an ode to the odd. Twitter, at podities. And Facebook, at podities. And if you have a story, or you want to share something, you have a topic request, literally anything, you can shoot us an email at podities at an ode to the odd dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider referring the show to a friend or rating it for us on iTunes. This is written and researched by Meg McGibbon and Callie Ayers. And until next time, seek out the strange and learn something new. Is that enough of Amanda's candle? (laughs) I bet it sounds like a bonfire. Okay, so this is the new part that we're still testing out where we pretend that it's over, even though, you know, it's not really. Mm -hmm. We just really like Marvel's style. (laughs) And uh, at some point during the episode, we each wrote down 
a title. I think Cal wrote more than one. I you just cheated. thought of another one. Oh, so. no. I gotta. So anyway, so what we do is we write down these title suggestions on post-it notes. So that way we can't see them. And then she's going to pick just one because I don't have two others. We're going to swap and then we say them out loud. And whoever's is funniest or most clever wins. And it's proved to be a little bit of an entertaining thing. My yes was was our last one. Was that the bagel one? Yes. <laughs> I was singing that little rhyme for like a whole week afterwards. Okay. So did you pick one? Yes. Are you happy? Yeah. I'm not happy with mine. So that's what she said. Maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't start the one. <laughs> Oh, as soon as I messed up, I was like, there it is. Oh my gosh, that wins hands down. (laughs) You're really playing to me just because you know that's one of my favorite songs of all time. Also, I may or may not be in the process of rewriting the song. Oh, I know you are. I've gotten a couple (laughs) (laughs) rough drafts of it. It's coming, guys. Don't worry. It's going to take some very niche population of people to appreciate that. Thank <laughs> you.